0: Welcome to Becoming Referrable, the podcast that shows you how to become the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Steve Worshing. On this episode, we talk with Myra Summers, clinical neuropsychologist on faculty with the Department of Clinical Health Psychology at the University of Manitoba, a Marshall Goldsmith certified coach and founder of Money, Mind, and Meaning in Winnipeg. She's also the author of the book Advice That Sticks, advisors face twin challenges first is providing the right advice and second is getting clients to act on that advice we have lots of training and resources for the former but precious little for the latter and that's where dr summer's book is such a gift in our conversation we talk about obstacles clients face on taking advice many of which originate with you the advisor we talk about the five contributors to financial adherence the curse of knowledge how it's impossible to motivate someone from the outside, but how you can stimulate someone's internal motivation, and how you can create policy-driven guidelines to keep clients on track. In the end, clients who accomplish things provide more and better referrals than ones who simply get good advice. And this is where Moira's advice can help build your business through creating better outcomes. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Moira Summers.
1: Moira Summers, welcome to the Becoming Referral podcast. So pleased to have you here today. Yeah. Lovely to meet you. Absolutely. I'm excited about this conversation because uh, we've been looking at your work and just, uh, just uh, such rich content that you are sharing with the industry. But before we even dig in on some of the specifics, I was wondering if you could give us just a little bit of background on you and your path here. And I know you've come out with a book recently, so we'd love to hear about how, how all of that came together.
2: Sure. I am a clinical neuropsychologist. I'm based out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I'm also a professor at the University of Manitoba. I have long had an interest in the things that influence whether or not people follow good advice, whether that's medical advice or uh, lifestyle advice or financial advice. And a few years ago, I became quite fascinated by the field of neuroeconomics and and how it is that people make decisions, uh, both in uh, through the work that's being done in neuroeconomics and behavioral economics. There's just a fascinating body of literature out there that um, combines with what's been coming out of the medical field for decades now that I thought would be an interesting fusion and that it would be of value and interest to the financial services industry.
1: And, And so maybe you can go a little deeper on where you saw the crossover, what you expected that crossover to be between the two communities.
2: You know, I I think that there are very few forces in um, secular society that really urge things like delay of gratification and impulse control. In fact, I think there's a whole lot out there that encourages just the opposite the buy now, the do, you know, do whatever feels good for now. Mm -hmm. And medicine and financial services share this. Um, focus on not only sort of stabilizing what's going on right now in the present, but also setting people up uh, for the, for a really good future. And because of that commonality, they share some predictable and fortunately in some ways preventable problems where we run flat up against... Uh, Temporal discounting or, you know, the tendency for people to really focus on the now versus the future. And turns out there are some really valuable strategies that can be adopted in in all domains of life that help people get past that immediate focus. There are also um, commonalities between the two areas in that sometimes the advice that we have to give is unpleasant. It may actually be painful in the uh, in the present moment to implement medical advice and financial advice. And again, we are starting to understand more and more about what allows people to embrace the advice despite the discomfort.
1: And. You, so you talk about these common, um, or all too common, but preventable. And by the way, I, I'm thinking about parenting as you're talking to. Mm. By the way, because I think there's <laughs> some applicability here. But um, uh, what what are some of those common? I don't know. Is it behaviors or habits or 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 what have you that that really stop us from thinking longer term?
2: Well. A lot of it is is simply competing demands on our time and energy. Um, a lot of people feel like the day has got a lot in it already <laughs> without mm-hmm. thinking about um, the future self and what he or she might need. Um, there can be, uh, quite frankly, just scarcity, financial scarcity in people's lives, that it's hard for them to think about freeing up money uh, for the future. Sometimes, though, it's not even about the investment stuff, Julie and Steve, it's about the having challenging conversations, having difficult conversations. So you mentioned parenting, Julie. Um, And oftentimes, you know, I just came out uh, out of some coaching sessions today with some clients who are not aligned in their marriage with how they should be supporting their late adolescent and early adulthood children as they move forward with their education and and lifestyle uh, decisions. And as a result of that non-alignment in the marital union, uh, avoidance just becomes a really easy and almost
3: addictive default.
2: Okay, let's not talk about that. And lo and behold, we immediately feel better than we did. <laughs> <30 seconds>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah.
3: Um, And and, well, and there's the, the element, as you were, as you were talking about the the natural forces, I was thinking to myself, you know, as I'm laying on the couch, you know, just trying to get persuade myself to pick up that kettlebell and lift it up, mm -hmm, you know, a couple mm -hmm. of dozen times. Um, and it's the whole, you know, the whole paradox of, you know, do I put this $10, you know, away from my retirement or get the pizza today? Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, you know how how do you over how, how do you first how do you get uh, people to overcome that kind of that kind of resistance and then how do you apply that same idea to that couple who's you know going to have the, the the instant reward of avoiding a, an argument you know by not talking about it now and 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 get them to talk about it now
2: mm-hmm. boy those uh... Uh, the brain just goes in a gajillion different directions <laughs> as, me, as, <laughs> right,
3: exactly. as I
2: think of it. You know, there were a lot of questions contained in that comment, Steve. Um, I think the best approach is really kind of a multifactorial or, and, uh, and a multidisciplinary approach. So that we have to kind of approach the problem at all levels, uh, the individual, the familial um, as well as in some ways the cultural what what have we set up as defaults um and then of course for purposes of of this interview um, i I wrote a book about what advisors themselves can do to influence the outcome of some of these things to really understand uh, what their own teams could be doing better or differently to help ensure follow through with financial advice so it's, it really, um, and, then, and then just getting beyond the, the individual financial advisor, you think about this multidisciplinary uh, approach that can be helpful. So uh, when I was working as a therapist, there were many times when I knew that I had to call in people from other disciplines, whether it was bringing in um, estate lawyers to make sure that couples got a will put together, um, bringing in financial advisors, bringing in accountants, bringing in um, family therapists if that was necessary. Uh, So the more uh, kind of diverse your, your referral network, the more you can be of service to your clients.
1: So you, you dangled out there that you had written about what, what advisors yeah, let's, can let's do, which, is, right. which sounds awesome. So, I mean, presumably what you just talked about is, is a little bit uh, a part of that. But can you, mm-hmm. can you expand on what advisors can do?
2: Well, I often find that it's helpful, uh, Julie, to start with uh, what we can stop doing, mm. um, because sometimes it's it's more important that we stop doing something, and that allows some really good things to start flowing. So um, at the risk of offending your listeners, <laughs> oh, go, go ahead, they're, they're
3: <laughs> adults. We're <laughs> all about that. They're <laughs>
2: tough. Um, uh, the biggest thing, the most important thing in this industry that I found is, is that it's really important that they learn how to hush to just stop talking so darn much. Mm. Um, this is a problem that we also have in medical schools, by the way, and really anytime we're working with smart experts. Their initial impulse is to begin to educate and influence, and they forget, uh, or they don't know yet, that, the most important thing is to seek to understand, and that's and and that's the most important thing for a couple of reasons. Um, there's the really pragmatic one: how can you give advice if you don't really understand what the client's concerns and situations are? Um, but. And the other one is that especially in the initial meetings, client satisfaction is directly related to how much airtime the client gets. And so if you as the professional spend all your time talking, trying to impress or influence them, you are really uh, creating the risk of driving them away.
3: And so let's uh, so uh, so let's drill into that a little bit. Um, can you give us an illustration of what an advisor m- might do as an alternative to to you know talking too much, transferring too much information?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, it's just really starting with open-ended questions, like "Tell me what brings you here," and what is it that you're hoping to accomplish in in our meeting today what would make this time together be the best use of your time and energy and indeed money
3: and and you talk about in your book you talk about doing that not just when a client when someone comes in new and thinking about being a client but you talk about doing that when a an established client comes in for a review meeting
2: i do that you know i i coach um executives and often have meetings with them uh, weekly, sometimes even bi weekly, Steve. And I ask that question at the outset of every single meeting. Because a lot can change between the last meeting you had and this one. And something may have risen to the forefront of their heart or their mind that's really, um, that, that really is the burning issue of the day. And if you just launch, uh, especially if you're dealing with very polite clients, they may not interrupt you. They may just kind of go with the flow, but be left with dissatisfaction and, and and an itch that still needs to be scratched. And they'll scratch that elsewhere if you don't give them the chance to really deal with it in your session, in your meeting with them. The other really challenging thing, um, and we get this, you know, at the medical schools, is that even even with the best intention to listen, um, we interrupt at at a frequency that is just ridiculous. At the medical school, for example, um, despite explicit instruction in the importance of not doing it, it takes the average physician just, you know, about 15 or 16 seconds to interrupt the average patient. <laughs>
3: wow. And,
2: <clears throat> and those are people who've had training. <laughs> right, right.
3: <laughs> what was it before that? Right, exactly.
2: Yeah. Uh, and so what? what my experience has been is that many of the people who are attracted to frontline work as financial professionals, they really have the gift of the gab. And many of them have come out of a sales environment where they are really reinforced for kind of holding the floor. And what we know is uh, if that ever was effective, and I'm not really sure that it was when we look at client dropout rates and, what, and referral rates, if that ever was effective, um, it's certainly not going to be effective with millennials who have been raised with the assumption that their opinions matter. Um, and uh, and it's, it's just not a good way to treat people.
3: Sure. So so besides uh, interrupting um clients and talking too much, what are some of the other things that advisors do that compromise the quali- the, the effectiveness of the advice they give?
2: Mm. Um You know, at some point we can talk about what advisors do well, if you
3: would like like to say Let's dwell on the negative. Let's accentuate the negative. All righty, (laughs) all
1: righty. Well, you you raised it by saying there are things we need to stop doing first. Then let's look at the start. (laughs) Um, So uh,
2: the other thing that needs to stop, and it's harder than you might think, is to use the kind of specialized uh, highly educated vocabulary mm. that is second nature to anybody who's been schooled in anything, whether we're talking about um, mutual funds or, or carburetors. Um, it, it, we, it's so hard for us to understand that when we come to know something, we are changed by the knowing of it, And it's equally hard to appreciate the fact that many people don't know what we know also. And so what starts to happen is that that highly specialized and technical vocabulary creeps into client sessions. And we assume that they understand what we mean. Because again, clients are pretty much socialized to smile and nod. And everybody hates admitting that they don't understand something. It takes a a, a fair amount of courage and assertiveness to say, I don't have a clue what you just said to me. Mm -hmm. But what I will tell you is that um, in the work that I do, particularly with High Net Worth Women... Um they talk about that as being one of the biggest turnoffs that they encounter.
3: Well, and I, I've seen that a lot of times with advisors. And I think one of the challenges is that after you've been in this or any technical business for, for, for a long time, you forget what, what people know and what they don't know and, and words that seem... Like basic English to you, or actually jargon. How 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 could what would be a good way for an advisor to uh, test that or to adjust it to make sure that they're speaking at a at a level that their clients can relate to? Uh,
2: We've had some fun with this one. It's you know a problem that's been dubbed the curse of knowledge. Uh, Some of your listeners may have may have read that term before. Um, And so one thing that I that I've done with some of the firms that I consult to is I just get them to print off everything that they might give to a client and then give sort of uh, nominate five or six people that they would say are fairly representative of their client base and give them a highlighter and say, would you please understand anything that you don't understand? And sometimes we get entire pages <laughs> that are colored. <laughs> and I mean, you, you, You and I have experienced that a lot when we look at the terms and conditions of any agreement that we look at on a computer uh, program or an app. You just kind of glaze over and you click yes because you want to get onto the darned internet. Um, But increasingly, regulators are not uh, allowing people to sort of tuck and draft behind a, a checked off box. Increasingly, regulators are demanding that clients actually be able to understand what it is they're agreeing to And that's in every domain it's in engineering it's in medicine it's in um, uh, it's in law even um, law practices are being really pressed to speak plain English And so uh, that's just doing that exercise helps you to understand what of this vocabulary that that is second nature to you is not, even to highly educated people. Um, And another fun thing that we sometimes do is um, have sessions where we have clients agree ahead of time to raise their hand every time you use a word that they don't get. And I was shocked when I did it myself uh, because I do a lot of financial therapy, as I mentioned, and I often get right into people's um, money with them. And so just saying to clients, you know, I want today I want us to have a good look at uh at your assets. And hands would go up. Mm. And I would say, what? And they say, Oh, I, what's that mean? Interesting.
3: Oh, oh really. that is interesting, yeah.
2: Oh, really? Um and 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 you know, um if the what your creditors might have, um, or let's do a credit check and another hand mm. would go up. And you think, wow, um, you really come to understand that we do have a crisis of financial literacy in this, in this, on this continent and indeed even in Europe. Um, and young people are not, um, being given the, the vocabulary to, to understand money in Canada. Uh, the federal government did a a task force a while back and found out that um, between 50 to 60% of Canadians don't have the level of financial literacy required to understand their own credit card statements or a cell phone Uh bill. So it's really important that um, we become understandable for our clients. And the payoff is that they love us for
1: it. Well, and I think there's, you know, the other very practical implication is a lot about what this this podcast is about, which is referrals. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at what point do you say to someone, you should really talk to my advisor, I understood about a third of what he said, but it, (laughs) it sounded really smart. You know, if they can't, if they can't articulate, and in, in, in if we're not using their language, they're never going to share that information.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Uh, one of the biggest
2: problems um, in terms of why clients don't show up for second meetings or why they don't agree to take you on is that they did not have a good experience, of course, in the first meeting, and a great deal of that is that they did not understand. They were they were made. To feel stupid, mm-hmm. um, and how ha- you know if somebody makes you feel stupid, you don't have a sense that they have your back. Yeah, and uh, that knowing that somebody gets you because they've actually listened to you, and knowing that um, you get them because you understand what they say, you know that's really foundational for doing work. In the future, and for especially for doing the hard work of of helping to change people's financial behaviors
3: and so Moira, um, in your book, you talk about um, an interest an interesting idea about taking the focus off of compliance meaning uh, or not calling clients following your advice compliance but calling it adherence. Can you tell us a little about the difference between those two things
2: compliance um, carries with it this notion that you know what's right and that they should just darn well do it. And if they don't do it, they're being non-compliant. Um, whereas, um, you know, the, the the move towards the word non-adherent or adherence partner uh, came out of medicine 30 years ago now. Um, there's still some resistance to it. But the notion is that that you're trying to get people to co-create uh, a plan, and that it's on both of you to help make adherence uh, a possibility. So for example, you don't require, you, you don't send people home to do some assignment that is completely outside of their ability to do so, or that would bring so much family disapproval raining down on their head, um, that they would, they would be punished, uh, in the attempt to do whatever it is that, uh, was advised in the office, and so the notion is that um, together you you work to find advice that will stick, um, that that people can adhere to, and that it's part of the job of the professional to figure out how to make that happen.
3: And and so so walk us through a sample conversation. So you have a client in your office who is giving way too much money to their kids. Um, to help support their lifestyles and, and you as the financial advisor can see that it's really going to compromise, um, you know, their ability to provide for their own retirement. And so you've got this difficult conversation that you're going to have. How, how would you navigate that with the client as opposed to just telling them, look, you have to do this or you're stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, how, 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 how might a conversation like that go where you can co-create something so that you you can obtain that client adherence?
2: Hmm. Um, I, I think one of the first things is not to jump too soon into giving the advice. Much of the time, clients understand already that this is a problem. Um, and if they don't, you indicating that that they're doing too much for their kids is likely to rally resistance, and you don't want to harness resistance that 's the last thing you want to harness so spending spending some time really exploring what is their understanding of uh, of this is do they see this as a problem? Um, what has led to it? What would their assumption be um, about what would happen if they stopped doing it, for example, because they may, they, uh, they do know a lot about their family, much more than you do. And so they may understand that, uh, for example, there is an addiction and they are giving this money to, uh, the spouse of the addicted partner, um, because without that bread and milk are not available for the children. Um, or, Um, they may be scared that if they cut off this child, that the child may experience unbearable stress and uh, be driven to hurt him or herself. And so you really have to be careful about giving advice before you fully understand the situation. And by the way, that that excessive giving to adult children is probably one of the top two things that drives advisors crazy. <laughs> it's, it's so stressful. It's fought, you know, it's matched right up there with just people who are overspending, um, and, uh, and sort of torpedoing their own retirement because of their own overspending. Um, and, and it, it creates a kind of, uh, anxiety in advisors yeah. and then if uh, ultimately it can create a kind of contempt or disdain in advisors uh, an anger well if you're not going to follow my advice then to heck with you or aren't you stupid because you're not so you know really exploring what it is that uh that led to this situation in their family asking whether they um they feel that there's any degree to which this is a problem um, either for the child or for their own lives in the future, their lives as a couple, their retirement plans, um, if it's an individual, um, whether he or she will will be able to manage and, and fund uh, healthcare up until the end of their life. So really exploring what their understanding of it is. And then... Um, through your knowledge of the client, being able to ask permission to to address a, a challenging topic, which is your concern that at this rate, um, they're giving to their to their children is unsustainable, and are they willing to have a a, a look at that with you? And, Does- Oh, sorry, carry on. Oh, no, it, it's just sort of this funnel approach um, where you start with what's their understanding. Are they willing to hear a little bit of input from you about what, you, what your concerns are? And then um, in the book, I go through a whole series of, of readiness questions where you assess whether the client is, is ready right now to do something about this problem. And if the answer is no, then you, learn, you need to learn <laughs> to, to, how to handle that hmm. yourself. Um, and you need to learn how um, to make that be okay and to help the client harness his or her own wisdom and insight about what they are ready to do right now. And to be willing to kind of postpone that, timetable that for later and think about what else can be done so to be able to have to exercise a kind of mental agility in dealing with what is the best current agenda for this client that's part of what really extraordinarily good advisors know how to do they're kind of good dancers they know how to <laughs> how to pivot they know how to pivot when pivoting is required
1: and this may be related to that example that you were just giving there but I think we're all aware and some of us have experienced that talking about money, either within a, between a couple or within a family can be uh, difficult. So uh, do you see that playing into um, some of the challenges that advisors might have in, in getting adherence? Mm.
2: Well, the fact is that we don't talk about money to many people much of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a weird thing to do in fact in in many circles it's quite taboo uh, that does vary from um, between cultures somewhat and it's kind of refreshing to be able to um, encounter people who have different values and and different norms around this stuff but um, in in I, I would still say the majority of North American, um sort of the cultural norm is still to not talk about money too much and that includes you know going right into marriage where people may not know what uh, the assumptions are that their beloved holds about what's what's important, what's unimportant um, what they own, what they owe, what they make um, you know I'm working with uh, some, some very high net worth, um, kids in a couple of families right now who are of marrying age and who are, who are about to make the commitment and they have not spoken to their, um, to their partners about anything around trust fund or prenup requirements. And it's, uh, they don't, they don't begin to know how to have those conversations. And, and similarly, um, when financial circumstances change in a family, um, we also have to be able to have those conversations then that this was the rule before, or this were, these were the guidelines that we ran a, uh, under before, but now our circumstances have changed either uh, for the better or the worse, and we need to figure out how to make this work as a family now. Uh, another domain where it can be challenging is, is in having parents talk to their uh, future heirs about what the plan is with the estate. Um, and many times they avoid that conversation literally unto death <laughs> and uh, and leave
1: real complications yeah. for the, the survivors. Yeah. So I assume that you also see examples of advisors who are tackling these issues and have found a way to facilitate. I always feel a great advisor is one who can sort of walk into this mess and and help couples and families really come together. Absolutely. And you know, you don't want an advisor to rush in where angels fear to <laughs>
2: tread. There's, you know, certainly some family circumstances that are are volatile and the fact that those discussions are not happening mm-hmm. with uh, future heirs, for example, that that's there for a very good reason. Um, and so again, developing your own referral network, making sure that you've got really good estate attorneys and therapists uh, that you can that you can punt to when families are ready to do that. That becomes a really important value add for
1: you. Let me, can I just pick up on something you just said there, because you talked about therapists and having a network. One of the, um, one of the things that I often hear, and I'm sure you do as well, is a a real discomfort. Uh, It's usually articulated as, I don't want to become their therapist. Um, Mm -hmm. And and in fairness, you shouldn't become their therapist. There's people who study for a very long time to do that work. Mm -hmm. Um, But do you, do you feel that Is this just a matter of understanding yourself and your own limits and then being able to move beyond those? Or do you think there's something that advisors need to ask themselves about where that line is?
2: Um, Yes, I I think advisors can become facilitators of difficult conversations in their own office but they do have to develop some skills that aren't typically taught in the technical aspect of the training. And so, for example, if an advisor can learn how to cultivate warmth, Mm -hmm. um, they will have much better outcomes. If an advisor can learn how to cultivate um, what I, what I speak (laughs) talking about the curse of knowledge uh the 64 word uh equanimity or or a kind of um, I'm, raising <laughs> I'm raising my hand yeah yeah um so a kind of being able to be calm mm-hmm. um and unruffled um in the face of strong emotion yeah uh that's that is a really important advisory skill because when do clients come to you they come to you disproportionately, like 70% or 80% of new clients come to you because of a major life transition. And so we're not talking here, they are coming to you because they just bought this great new blouse. <laughs> They're coming to you because there's a baby on the way or because they've just received an inheritance. And there's a whole, not only is there money in motion, but there, are, there is meaning mm. in motion. And there is identity in motion, and there is a heck of a lot of emotion in motion <laughs> as a result. Um, and so learning skills for dealing with that aspect of being an ACE advisor is, is really valuable. And that doesn't turn you into a therapist. Right. That just turns you into somebody with great presence,
1: yeah. And do you talk about these skills in your book or are there other resources for advisors who, who feel like they could use some support there? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, I do. I do talk about that in the book. Um, and there are programs that get into the personal side of advising, um, with consider, you know, in considerable depth and they teach advisors how to have those conversations, um, I, I'm on faculty, for example, with the Sudden Money Institute or the Financial Transitionist Institute, as it's called now.
1: Yeah, and they, we do a, so, they do great stuff there, by the way.
2: Yeah, we do a lot of work at helping advisors um, learn where that ethical boundary is, where advisors um, – in pretty much every profession, not just the financial services one, but uh, there's this disproportionate number of complaints that come before regulatory bodies that aren't about sort of slathering psychopaths who are out to rook their clients. Uh, that isn't how the ethical violations occurred. It's the, a, a really high number of ethical violations occur because the professional was trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And they went beyond the scope of their licensure or beyond the scope of their professional training, beyond the scope of what is considered ethically advisable, all in an effort to to be helpful or useful or to address clients' pain. And so again, uh, that skill of... um, Equanimity of 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 knowing how to deal with your own emotion as well as clients' emotions is really
1: important if you're to stay on the side of the angels. Right, that makes sense. And it's you know we we do talk about client experience and becoming referrable and it's uh, it's just r- so refreshing to to go deeper on this piece of the puzzle because i it it gets lost in talking about process and tactics and strategies and, and, and this is just these are such important conversations i would uh, we'll make sure we put a link to your book in the show notes cuz i think this is a must read for for everyone but um, and while i could go on <laughs> i know we've uh, we've gone over yeah. our
3: Time. Let's can we find out? Can we get Moira to tell us where, uh, where people can find her and then we'll put those in the show notes as well?
2: Yeah, Moira, where would people actually reach you? Uh, through, my, through my website, moneymindandmeaning.com or email Dr.
1: summers at moneymindandmeaning.com. Wonderful. Well, we'll make sure we include those links as well. Moira, thank you so much for your thank time. You. Thanks, it's Moira. lovely to speak to you. Hi, it's Julie again. It was great to have you with us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. Thanks so much for joining us.